All right, I got a question for you. My wife and I had a little bit of a debate about this last week. Uh, do you remember, are you familiar with Choose Your Own Adventure books? Okay. All right, let's have, I'm seeing a lot of head nodding. Raise your hand if you don't know what I'm talking about. You don't know Choose Your Own Adventure. That's okay. You can, you can admit that. Uh, those of you who have, you've read a Choose Your Own Adventure book. Okay, it seems like a lot of you. All right, these are these books. I remember as a kid where there, there was these, these different series where you would read through a story. And at the end of a certain chapter, you would choose your own adventure. Meaning you would have options at the end of your chapter. Two sort of different paths to go with a book. It would basically be like, if you want the character, if you think the character did this, turn to page 76. If you think he did this, turn to page 32. And, and sort of you like curate your own story. It's a choose your own adventure sort of thing. I've seen a couple examples of choose your own adventure for the digital age lately, which is so weird and odd to realize that now we're trying this out digitally. TV shows are trying choose your own adventure. I saw a show on Netflix this weekend. Um, the guy from, from Man vs. Wild now has a version of that on Netflix where you choose what path he takes in his adventure. It's really kind of crazy, pretty interesting. So the question of choose your own adventure is which path will you choose, right? You come to this convergence and you have a decision to make. As we come to the conclusion of Paul's letter to Philemon, we're left with a choose your own adventure situation. Where you have a couple of different paths to walk here. Just like we concluded in Acts in the fall and Jonah earlier in the semester, the book of Philemon just sort of ends and it sort of leaves us with a question. Now, the question behind Acts was the question of, will you participate in God's mission? That's just sort of how it ends. The question behind Jonah earlier this semester was, will you respond to God's compassion? The question behind Philemon is simply this. Has the gospel changed you? Has union with Christ changed the way that you relate to him and to the people around you? That's the central question behind Philemon. And really here tonight, we're given two paths to choose from, even in this list of men. And hopefully we'll see that as we go along. All right. So as we conclude Philemon, we're definitely left with some unanswered questions. I don't know if you thought I was going to give you like the ending to Philemon. What happened? Were Philemon and Onesimus reconciled? We don't know. Uh, We don't know what happened with them. We don't know if they were reconciled. We don't know if Philemon received Onesimus back as a brother and no longer a slave. Um, This is one of those questions that I would like to ask in heaven if we actually get to ask questions in heaven. I don't know who came up with that plan. But if we did, this would be one. I would be like, where's Philemon? Onesimus, can we talk? What happened? But we, we don't know exactly what came of that situation. But it's interesting, even in these names, we do get a sense of what happens to some of these other guys. Um, Some of the names that come up in these final verses are some people that Paul mentions in lots of places. Most scholars believe, now stay with me on this because this is going to make sense hopefully here in a second. Most scholars believe that Paul wrote this letter around the same time that he wrote the letter to the Colossian church, which was around 62 AD. Now that would have been 20 years after we meet Paul in Acts and he goes on his missionary journeys. And then Paul wrote the last letter of his life, at least the letter recorded in Scripture for us, which was 2 Timothy, two years after he wrote this one. Okay, 62, uh, I mean 64 AD. So 62 is this one, and then in 64 he wrote the letter to Timothy. Now I bring this up because the names here appear in 2 Timothy 
as well as in Colossians, as well as in Philemon, and actually a couple of other places. And so we get to see some of the paths that some of these men walked. Some of these names are sort of like um, Stan Lee in all the Marvel movies. You know how he just shows up? Like Stan Lee's in like all the Marvel movies. You can always expect a cameo from Stan Lee. Even in the movie that came out after his death into the Spider-Verse, what I just saw, which was amazing, there was an animated Stan Lee in the movie. Epaphras is like Stanley, right? Uh, Aristarchus is Stanley. Definitely Mark and Luke and these guys are making their cameos. So I'm calling them Paul's posse. This is his squad. These are guys, these are his boys. The squad, I know that's 2016 of me, but I'm calling it that. I'm an old man. What do you do? So here's a quick rundown of these guys. Let me, let me go through four of them first, very quickly. Epaphras, this was a guy who knew the Colossians really well. Most likely he actually helped plant the church. In Colossae, the one that meets in Philemon's house. Now he's in prison with Paul and he sends his greetings. Aristarchus shows up in Acts 19. He also shows up in the Colossian letter. He was another faithful co-laborer of Paul's. He seems to choose to go on a number of Paul's adventures with him throughout these stories. Luke is a familiar name. It is that Luke that you know of from other places in Scripture. That Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and wrote what other book did Luke write? Acts that we studied in the fall. He's a physician who was a common companion of Paul's throughout much of his ministry. Uh, If you remember in Acts, if you've ever read through it, it turns first person at one point. All of a sudden the they turns to we. That's Luke talking about his own involvement in the story. And then there's Mark. And I love this part of it. Mark, or as he's named in other places, is John Mark. What I love about Mark's mention in Philemon is it goes back to Acts 15. You don't have to turn there, but there's this story in Acts 15 about Paul and Barnabas having a disagreement. It was a disagreement over someone that Paul basically felt was not able to minister with them. And they split over this person, Paul and Barnabas, and they went separate ways for a time. In fact, the text in Acts tells us that a sharp disagreement arose between them. And they went separate ways. Do you know who the disagreement was over? It was John Mark. 20 years ago. Here's why this is huge for me. Because Paul is calling Philemon to a ministry of reconciliation. Is he not? He's calling him to a ministry of reconciliation between believers who have had a sharp disagreement. A brother in Christ who he disagrees with. But Paul is not calling him to reconciliation without having walked that path himself before. And so 20 years after their very public split. Now imagine your disagreement is recorded, you know, in the scriptures for all of like, I don't know, eternity. They had a very public disagreement. And now 20 years later, now Mark is with Paul again. Isn't that beautiful? He's with him. He's laboring with him, serving as a faithful minister alongside him in his imprisonment in Rome. That is amazing to me. The gospel of reconciliation is real and it produces real change and real relationships. And so in these four men that I just named, we have path number one. And that's the path of walking faithfully with the Lord, maybe over the long haul. But there's another path in this choose your own adventure story. Because there's one more name in Paul's posse here. It's Demas. With these other four names, we've seen tremendous growth and people changing in all sorts of good ways. But with Demas, we find another change. And with Demas, 
we find a warning. We find a warning in his story. I've always found Demas's story, even the very little that we know about it, to be really, really heavy. For years, Demas's story has sort of bothered me, if I'm honest. Because at times I've wondered, am I going to end up like Demas? I thought about being really gutsy and naming this uh, message, Don't Be a Demas. That sounded edgy in my head. <laughs> Don't be a Demas. But I didn't name it that. But I feel that. Like, I feel that in my own heart. Don't be Demas. And it's only by God's grace that any of us don't turn out to be Demas. So you're wondering, like, what's up with Demas? I want to do something that's going to make you feel a little uncomfortable for a second. Um, If this didn't, maybe this other thing will. (laughs) I want you to look around the room right now. And I want you to look at your friends. I want you to look at the people that you hope to walk through college with, or maybe those you've walked through college with. Okay? Makes my contact. People that you've sat in Bible studies with, had lunches, ridden the conferences together, had times, you can stop looking around now. <laughs> had times of very deep conversations, times of a lot of fun, times of hard conversations and tears, a lot of times of laughter. The hard and sad reality of college ministry. I'm giving you some honest stuff as I've been processing the story tonight. One of the hard realities of college ministry is that this is only a snapshot, right? This is only, from our perspective, from my perspective as a campus minister, this is only a window, a small window into your lives, 18 to 22, 23, whatever. It's a blip on the radar. But we're trusting that God will do something during these four short years that will have a lifetime of impact. That's what we hope will happen. It's why RUF exists. But there's always this question, and the question is this, will it last? Will it last? Will what you have learned and experienced in gospel community, whether it's an RUF or hopefully other campus ministries or a church that you're involved in, will it continue past this unique time in your life? To say it plainly, will you be walking with the Lord, say in 30 years from now? Will your friends be walking with the Lord in 15 years from now? Let's say two, two years from now. Because the truth is, and this is a warning that comes from this passage, not all of us will be. Okay? It was just two years after Paul wrote this letter to Philemon, one of the leaders in the church, that he wrote another letter to another leader in the church, Timothy. That second letter to Timothy you can turn there if you want to or just write it down. It's 2 Timothy 4.9 where we learn about Demas. Two years after Demas was with Paul as he's writing to Philemon, Paul writes this. He says to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. It's one of the saddest verses in the Bible, and it's bothered me for about 20 years. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. What became of Demas? We don't know. How did he fall in love with this present world? What does that exactly mean? We don't know. But I do know many ways that I could fall in love with this present world. 
I do know of many ways that you could too. Many ways that lots of us probably already have fallen in love with this present world and we might be tempted to desert God and his people along the way. And especially on the college campus, y'all, there's plenty of opportunities to fall in love with this present world and completely miss the calling of the Christian life. I want to try to work this out over the next few minutes. I read an article. To, I just read it today. And so I, I included a lot of this as I was reworking this thing. It just published yesterday by um, a, the really famous New York Times columnist named David Brooks. You can Google this article. It's called Five Lies Our Culture Tells. It's very short. Five Lies Our Culture Tells. It's like it was written for this message. And so I'm going to insert some of his lies because I feel like he's talking to you. And he's talking to me. Some of the lies that our culture is spreading, particularly to college students, because his opening says this. He says, college mental health facilities are swamped. Does that sound familiar? College mental health facilities are swamped. Suicide rates are spiking. And at the root of it all is this problem. We've created a culture based on lies. It's really interesting. Pulls you in a little bit, right? What are his lies? I'm not going to give you all five. I'll let you go read it. I want to give you three that he mentions. Number one, that career success equals fulfillment. He writes, this is the lie we foist on the young. In their tender years, we put the most privileged of them inside a college admissions process that puts achievement and status anxiety at the center of their very lives. And that begins advertising's lifelong mantra, if you make it, life will be good. But everyone who's actually tasted success can tell you that it's just not true. It's powerful, y'all. He talks about status anxiety. Soon you seniors, soon to be graduates, will find this to be amazingly true. Yes, your career can be great, but it will never fulfill you on a deep level. In fact, if we begin to believe that our careers will fulfill our lives, then our faith will be derailed. And we'll follow the path of Demas, falling in love with the offerings of this present world. Our status anxiety will seep into our lives and we'll just demand more, 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 and we'll never be settled. That's lie number one. He gives the second lie. I can make myself happy. He says this is the lie of self-sufficiency. It's the lie that happiness is an individual accomplishment. If I can just have one more victory, lose 15 more pounds or get better at meditation, then... Then I'll be happy. Again, what he's getting at is the same old idea of individualism. You do you. Get a little more, lose a little more, make a little more. It's the promise that never delivers. And it's the path that will always lead to wanting more. That's lie number two. And lie number three on his list is life is an individual journey. And I thought this was so interesting coming from him. He's, this is a secular, this is a New York Times Life is an individual journey. He says, this is the lie that Dr. Seuss's book, Oh, the Places You'll Go, tells. (laughs) In adulthood, each person goes on a personal trip and racks up a bunch of experiences. And whoever has the most experiences wins. This lie encourages people to believe freedom is the absence of restraint. Be unattached. Stay on the move. Keep your options open. Y'all heard any of these phrases before? But in reality, the people who live best tie themselves down. They don't ask, what cool thing can I do next? They ask, what is my responsibility in this place? 
They respond to some problem or get called outside of themselves by a deeper love. By planting themselves in one neighborhood or one organization or one mission. They earn trust. They have the freedom to make a lasting difference. And this is his line. He says, it's the chains that we then choose to make ourselves free. He goes on to talk about other lies. Finding your own truth, being rich or successful. But his conclusion is this, and this will be my last quote from Brooks, and I want to summarize it. He says, the message of our day is that you are what you accomplish. Or that if you perform well, people will love you. No wonder it's so hard to be a young adult today. No wonder our society is fragmenting. We've taken the lies of hyper-individualism and we've made them the unspoken assumptions that will govern our lives. It's really powerful what he's saying. I think his message is really important, especially when we talk about falling in love with this present world, what it might look like. It looks like individualism. It looks like materialism. It looks like comfort and power, even on this campus. And I kind of want to speak carefully here, but I, but I also want to speak directly. Sometimes it looks like ring by spring, doesn't it? The pressure cooker of this campus in all sorts of ways that we could summarize by the lingo of the culture. What might you compromise in order to get what our culture is promising? That's the question behind falling in love with this present world. What could take us out of the race? That's the warning of Demas. Now, let me be clear what I'm not saying. And some of you are already like, I'm not sure this guy is right. I'm not saying that if you are a Christian, you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that's what's happening to Demas. He's not losing his salvation. You cannot lose your salvation according to Scripture if you're a Christian. We can look at a thousand verses about that if you have any questions. So that leaves two other options then about Demas. One option is that perhaps he was never a Christian in the first place. I think it's John who says in another place, they were with us, but they were not of us. There's people in churches all across America. There's plenty of people in churches in this town who are not actually Christians. They are with us, but they are not of us. And that may be what's going on with Demas and his true faith is or lack of faith is exposed later. Or option number two is that Demas was a Christian. He remained a Christian, obviously, because you don't lose that. But he went from serving the Lord faithfully to running and rebelling. And I kind of think that's more likely. We know that God did not abandon Demas, but it seems that Demas at least abandoned Paul. And we can infer from that, which probably means he was running from God, too, because the world looked better. Maybe Demas repented and turned to the Lord again. I hope so. But we don't know. But we are warned. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says we're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. You hear his word picture there. We are like ignorant children making mud pies in the slum when we don't understand what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. His point is that he uses the category sex and drink and ambition, which are pretty good categories to speak to today, are not our main problems, but they have become our favorite solutions. The things we turn to to hide and cope with our other problems. 
And we are far too easily pleased and we can miss out on the deeper life that God has called us to by running to the quick fixes that never satisfy, but they're right there in front of us. This will work. And so there's the warning. Don't fall in love with this present world. So maybe the question that you're all sort of like asking now and feeling is what do I do about this? What do we do with that warning? And so we return back to the key of the whole letter. When we first started the study in Philemon three weeks ago, I mentioned the, the key, the koinonia key. That's the theme undergirding the whole letter. It's this deep union that Christians share with one another. But there's a key underneath that key. It's like a master key. Or it's like, um, it's like the, the bread of a really good sandwich. There's this, there's this key that comes up in this passage that's the beginning and the end of the letter. Like bread. Like an Oreo. Like other things, bookends. You get the picture? Like bread, bookends, or an Oreo. It's the thing that's on the outside that holds everything together. And so the key, the bread, the Oreo, the bookends is this little word, grace. You see it very early in in Paul's letter, grace to you and peace. And then at the very end, he concludes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace in the biblical sense is undeserved favor. Because the bottom line is that any one of us can be Demas. Were it not for grace. And for that matter, any of us could be Onesimus, the thieving servant. Were it not for grace. Or we could be Saul, the persecutor, the violent terrorist, were it not for grace. Paul writes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit because he knew that the only path forward was the grace-filled path. The only hope for reconciliation in that situation was grace. The only hope for reconciliation in our lives is grace. The only hope for us to walk faithfully with the Lord over the long haul. It's grace. It's grace. It's that God doesn't give us what we want. It's that he gives us what we need. Himself. Our world wants you to believe that the more you do, the more you will be loved. But the gospel tells you that you are loved before you can even do. Society tells you that you matter because of the grades you make or the school you attend or the job you land. But the gospel tells you that you matter because you matter because you're the child of God. Our culture tells you that you have to do the extraordinary to find real meaning and make sure to post it on Instagram. But the gospel tells us that we have ordinary reminders in our everyday life that life is meaningful because he's given it to you as a gift. Theologians often talk about the ordinary means of grace. And that that phrase was really confusing to me for a long time. But I've realized it just means those common practices that Christ has left his followers to have. To experience grace in ordinary ways. And to walk a faithful path with him. The ordinary means of grace include things like the word, the sacraments that you have in the local church, or prayer. And I actually think in the ordinary means of grace come the answers to combat the lies of the culture. Well, let me put it this way. I've been following a little golf lately. Pick that up in my spare time. And if I've learned anything from watching a golf tournament over, over the course of a few days, it, it's this idea. If you don't play well on Thursday, you don't play on Sunday. Right? You've got to show up. 
If you look at, and this goes back to March Madness a couple weeks ago. Hang with me. I've got a couple sports illustrations. I need sports, yeah, illustrations for you. Um, March Madness, a couple, a couple weeks ago, um, listening to one of the coaches who was in the Final Four. And he, and he just had this, this comes up with coaches all the time. And you heard it in golf. You heard it Sunday after the Masters. The same idea that you've got to just sort of like, you've got to show up in that moment and do the thing that's right in front of you. You, you have to take advantage of the opportunity that you have right then if you want to continue on in the tournament. Does that make sense? If you don't perform well in this moment, you, you won't get to continue on well down the road. Now, I don't want to make this a performance thing, but, but the point is you have to walk in the path that's in front of you. You've got to put yourself in a position to receive well. So let me, let me switch the analogy now to a garden analogy. It's the same idea for growth. If I'm going to have a garden in my yard, which I do now, thanks to Jonathan Anderson who made me one. Um, <laughs> If, I, if I'm going to have a garden and I'm going to grow vegetables, I've got to put that garden in a place that's going to receive the nutrients that it needs in order to grow. Now, I've done this very wrongly in the past. That's another illustration. It takes way too long to explain, but I was terrible at that. Okay, I put a garden in a dirt place that was covered in trees. That was not a good place for a garden. Because gardens need something very specific, especially vegetable gardens. What do they need? They need rain. They need sunlight. They need good soil. So in order for something to grow in our lives, you have to be in a position to receive the things that you need to receive in order to grow. Does that make sense? If you want to play on Sunday, you've got to show up on Thursday and just do the thing that's in front of you. So what does this look like for the Christian? I think this is true spiritually. You need to put yourself in a position to grow. If you want to walk with the Lord over the long haul, you have to show up now. Put yourself in a position to grow. And by God's grace, he's given us all sorts of means through which he has spoken where he promises to meet you. Ordinary means. He's offered you common elements that we can lean into in order to receive the grace that we need for our lives. And so let me just name three and we'll be done. Three very simple means of grace that God has given us. We need God's word. We need God's word. This isn't just some book of stories. It's not some antiquated theological ideas. It's not something distant that sits on my shelf to make me feel guilty through college. This, these are the words of life. These are the words of life. It's common. It's ordinary. It's black letters on white pages. Ordinary. But these are the words of the Lord that will stand forever. And if you need direction, it's here. You need wisdom. You need guidance. You need hope. You need healing. The words of life are here. Recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. It's all here. David Mathis gives this great illustration in his little book called the, I think it's called The Ordinary Means of Grace or something like that. Where he talks about, he says, I can flip on a light switch, but I don't provide the electricity. I can turn on the faucet, but I don't make the water come out. He says there will be no light and there will be no water unless someone else provides it. All I'm doing is flipping a switch, turning on the faucet. And that's true for the Christian life. He says grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. We can't make grace flow, but God has given us little circuits to connect and pipes to open. 
in case it's there for us. I love this picture there. Flip on the light switch. Turn on the faucet. Let grace flow into your lives. That's what we have promised in the pages of Scripture. That could look like all sorts of things practically. I just want to encourage you uh, to use the words that God is giving you. You could come up with a Bible reading plan. You can use a devotional. You can read your Bible with a friend or whatever it is. Pull up an app on the phone. Listen to something. There's some great audio Bibles out there. Just something where God's word speaks. It's ordinary, right? We need it. We need God's word. That's number one. Number two is we need God's people. If I could quote Thor for a minute. When he said, Asgard's not a place. What does he say? It's a people. That is one of the truest statements of the church I've ever heard. The church is not a place. It's not a building. It's not something. It's somebody. It's a people. God has provided for you, if you're a Christian, with a people who are charged to help you remember who you are in this world. Because we so often forget. And when you engage with a local church, you sit under the preaching of his word and even the administration of the sacraments like the Lord's Supper and baptism. What are these? These are ordinary means of grace. God has given us wine and bread and water, ordinary stuff that he uses to provide extraordinary nourishment and reminders of grace in the local church. Vivid reminders that you are not alone. God is with you. And as people are with you, as David Brooks said, plant yourself somewhere. And number three, we need God's word. We need God's people. And we also need God's ear. We need prayer. For me, I know when I'm believing the lies of the culture, when I am prayerless. Does that make sense? When I'm prayerless. And it's way more often than I would ever be comfortable telling you. It's when I'm believing the lies of the culture that I can do it. I can do ministry. I can show up. I can teach. I can hang out. We can have one-on-ones. We can talk about hard things in your life. That's not going to go well for very long. Prayerlessness is a sign that we have bought the lies of the culture. Hook, line, and sinker. Individualism, self-dependency, the lie that I am what I do. When I believe these lies, I work too long and I don't go home when I should. Or I worry about stuff too late in the night and it affects sleep or it affects my time with Kelly or the girls or I'm short with them. That's me believing lies. And it affects family life. We need God's ear though. We need God's ear. He, he wants to hear these concerns. The ears of the Lord are open to his people. We need to confess our self-dependency and lean on his grace to cast your burdens onto Jesus for he cares for you. For he loves us all. Friends, don't be a Demas. But instead, look to the Jesus who loves you so he will never let you go. Rest your weary soul in him. I want to end with this verse for this series. Uh, The author of Hebrews picks up this theme. After he goes through his famous hall of faith in Hebrews 11, he comes to Hebrews 12. And he says these great lines where he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us look to Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I know that's wordy, but what he's saying is that we have things in our lives that weigh us down, that will sideline us from the race. And he says, set those aside and look straight to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, because we can't do this on our own. But he, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Do you know, friends, what the joy set before Jesus was? It was you. You were the joy set before Jesus that took him to the cross. Where he despised the shame of that moment and he took on all of our lies. And he took on all of the weight and the sin that holds us down. And he took it all on because you were the joy set before Jesus. He endured the cross for you. The invitation for you tonight is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and walk in the path of life that he offers you. That is how loved you are, friends. If you've never encountered that sort of love, that invitation is for you for the first time. Or if you have and you're running from it, that invitation is here for you for the hundredth time. Look to Jesus. And receive this benediction that Paul leaves us with. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me?